Today, as we come to Psalm 103, I mentioned it's a psalm familiar to us because we have for so many years sung it on the first Sunday of the month after the Lord's Supper. That its words are familiar to us. We can sing it in our sleep, I'm sure. And it is really just one of those glorious psalms. It's one of the texts. There are certain texts in the Bible that are hard to preach because they're so rich just in and of themselves. It's like the sermon should just be reading the psalm and we would do well. Uh, what can I add? What can you, what, not that I can add, but what can I even explain? It's so clear and so beautiful just in its own words, Psalm 103. It's maybe one of those psalms in which the gospel is so right on the nose and on the front of it. And it's appropriate for this Reformation Sunday. Again, it's this truth, it's the truth of this psalm that made Luther just rise to the highest heights in his own soul uh, to say words like he felt as if he had entered into the very gates of paradise itself that caused him to stand before the Holy Roman Emperor and risk death, but which, by the way, if you don't know the story, he he did not die. Uh, He was whisked off and uh, protected and uh, ultimately never pursued by the Holy Roman Emperor after his, he was given 60 days to change his mind, and, uh, and after those 60 days, uh, never really was pursued. The Holy Roman Empire ended up in its own political battles, and they didn't worry about Luther, and Luther was allowed to live out his days until he died of sickness uh, years later. Um, but nonetheless, Luther was willing to die for the truth of the gospel, for the truth of this psalm. And so it's a joy and a privilege to be able to look at it this morning. Now, we've thought together, if we just think of Psalm 101, 102, and 103 together, we we see really the the flow and the the, um, of Luther's struggle, let's put it that way, right? Psalm 101, this psalm of holiness and David's claims of what he's going to do in his kingdom, that he's going to pursue a, a righteous and a holy kingdom. He's not going to tolerate any evil thing. He's not going to tolerate evil people and and Luther wanted that uh, for his own life, right? The holiness, there's that holy standard that sort of hung over him and in some ways which excited him. But very, very quickly, Luther arrived in the state of Psalm 102, uh, a, a, a place of the valley, a place of despair. Luther knew that he could not clean his own hands. He, he couldn't get the stain of sin off of his soul. No matter what he did, he would ask himself, do I now think God is satisfied? Have I, have I somehow satisfied the judgment that the Lord uh, uh, would wage on my, on my sin? And no matter what he did, even the, the penances that the uh, abbot of the monastery, the priest in the monastery would give to him, Luther would not only do them, but he would go well above and beyond those things to sort of make it stick, uh, to convince himself, okay, that's, that's what you think the Lord requires? Okay, I will go above and beyond it just to sort of seal the deal. But after he did that, his soul still felt dirty. He felt sinful. He felt he could not please God. And this put him into a place of real despair. You know, why are you far from me? I mean, uh, in fact, before he gets to Romans, as I mentioned in Romans 1, 16 and 17, and the boom, the lights, the spiritual lights go on. Luther had been teaching through the Psalms and he landed on Psalm 22, that familiar psalm to us, the psalm that Jesus prays on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luther, that was the first sort of a pre-tremor 
that went off in his soul. He read that psalm, a psalm he was, again, very familiar with, but you know how it is when you read the Bible and you've read something again and again and again, and all of a sudden one day, just it's like, wow, I never, that never hit me like it just hit me. I, it's like I'd never seen that before. And that's what happened in Psalm 22. Luther read that and he said, my goodness, that's, that's my prayer. That's exactly how I feel. I feel forsaken by God. I, I know I cannot please him. I'm not a man. I'm a worm. I'm, I, I, the Lord is not hearing my prayers. He's, he's far from me. That's that Psalm 102 reality. And Luther felt forsaken by God. You'll remember if you know the story that Staupitz actually came to Luther at one time and basically told him to relax. Like, brother, you've got to calm down. You just need to love God. Just relax and love God. And Luther's famous line, love God. Sometimes I hate him. And kind of, I'm sure, set Staupitz on his heels. But what Luther meant is, I, you, you asked me to love God, but I, can't, I cannot please him. I know this. No matter what I do, whatever I offer up to him, it's not, it's not acceptable. It's, it's unacceptable. How can I love a God like that? How can I love a father like that? With no matter what you do and the hardest you try, it's unacceptable. Luther was really in a place of despair. But then, in Wittenberg, reading Romans and Augustine, Luther discovered, though not literally, but he walked into the realm of Psalm 103. He understood the gospel. And when he understood that, there was just no turning back for him. And Psalm 103 brings us through that. So Psalm 101, we have that call to holiness. Psalm 102, the despair that kind of comes from knowing we don't measure up. And then what do we do? Well, Psalm 103 reminds us what to do. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How can we praise a God we cannot satisfy? Praise him and forget not all his benefits. Now, I, I had about five titles for this sermon. I should have just listed them all out because I, I literally labored over what to title this sermon because I had so many good ones uh, in my head that I wanted to title this sermon. Um, and I went, with, uh, I went with preach to yourself or preaching to yourself. What did I title this sermon? Preaching to yourself. Um, because that's what this psalm is. It's one of those psalms where, and there's a few of them in, in here, that the psalmist is not speaking directly to God. He's not even speaking to the congregation, but he's speaking to himself. We have other psalms like this. You know, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? It's a psalm that is, is not so much a prayer as much as it is a sermon, an exhortation to yourself. And that's what this is. This psalm is directed to himself. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. He's preaching to himself. And I want to charge you today to become excellent preachers to yourself. Now you come here Sunday after Sunday and you get preached at but we all, in this sense, like the psalmist, need to become excellent expositors. We need to be excellent preachers. We need to be able to turn to ourselves and preach to our own soul. Because, And the psalmist is doing this because he recognizes the plight of a, of a believer. And that is sometimes there's a disconnect between kind of what I know here and what sinks down into here, into my heart and into my soul. We could, most of us in here could ace a good theology test 
a basic Christianity 101 test about what we believe. But getting it from here, the content of the Nicene Creed, the content of the Apostles' Creed, the content of the Westminster Confession of Faith and all these wonderful confessions and catechisms, getting it from here down to here is a hard thing. And it requires us to press and to push and to preach. And the psalmist needs it. So it's not just you and I. It's the inspired writers of the Bible who need it. And the fact that the Lord, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes in Holy Writ, in a book of prayers and songs, songs directed to the singer, is telling. God thinks you need it. The Psalms are here to, as training wheels. They're training wheels for your prayer life. You and I need to read the Psalms and get them into our souls so that they begin to become the the tracks on which our prayers ascend. And so the fact that Psalm 103 is in here tells us that we need to learn to pray, but we also learn we need to learn to preach and preach to our own souls. So the psalmist in the in the in the order that the Psalms kind of have here, we have this Psalm of David where coming out of Psalm 102, this one is placed next in the Psalter. It wasn't necessarily written next, but in the Psalter, in the list, we have a flow of 101, 102, and 103. And here we have David reminding himself to remember. He's reminding himself to remember. He's preaching to his soul not to forget something. He is prone to forget and you are prone to forget and I am prone to forget and the psalmist now reminds us to remember by preaching to his own soul so what does he call us to remember let's just kind of jog through it and again I feel like we could just read the psalm and it would be sufficient David first reminds his soul to remember the benefits of God to him bless the Lord praise the Lord oh my soul And all that is in me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And what are these amazing benefits? And here we just have this wonderful list of the magnificent benefits. One of the titles that I was going to entitle this sermon was from Ephesians 1. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul picks up this same language in, in Ephesians 1. Right When he calls us to praise the God and Father, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he elaborates in that beautiful Trinitarian way with the Father predestining and the Son redeeming and the Holy Spirit sealing. It's just, you, you know, it's that wonderful, long, run-on sentence of praise as Paul just rejoices in the Lord and in the benefits. Every spiritual blessing is yours. And he will go on in Ephesians 1 to say that he praises God for the grace that has been lavished upon us. Paul's telling the Ephesians what David is telling his own soul. Do not forget all the benefits of God to you. And what are they? He forgives all your iniquities. That's really important given Psalm 101 and the, the, the holy standard there and Psalm 102, the despair that David here leads off with this, here's the benefits, he forgives you. And boy, did David know it. 
Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, against whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. David is the man who wrote Psalm 51 in which he cries out to the Lord regarding his own sin, grievous sin, inexplicable sin. And David writes in pouring out his soul in Psalm 51, that psalm of repentance and confession, and David knew what it meant to be forgiven. And he reminds his own soul here, don't forget the benefits of the Lord. He is the one who forgives all our iniquities. Now, I get the privilege of saying this to you every Sunday in the assurance of pardon, but you need to say it to yourself weekly, daily, hourly. You need to remind yourself that you are forgiven. And that's important on multiple levels because if I hear that I'm forgiven, then I also have to confess I've done something wrong. If I walk up to somebody and I say, Mark, I forgive you, Mark's immediate response is, what did I do? If I say I forgive you, the implication is you've done something wrong. When David says here he forgives all our iniquities, he's also confessing he's a man of iniquity. And for you daily and hourly to remember and to preach to your soul that all your iniquities have been forgiven is good on two fronts. One, it reminds you that you are a man or a woman of iniquity. And secondly, lest that drive you into despair, you're reminded that you are forgiven that you have a father who loves you. Don't forget his benefits. He forgives all your iniquities. Secondly, he heals all your diseases. Now this one seems applicable. He heals all our diseases. I've referenced this before because it seems like this is one of those things that makes us think the Bible is not being honest. Because we've gotten diseases. We're praying for people who have diseases. And they've not been healed. We all have friends, believers who are friends, who have died of disease. How do we handle a verse like this? He heals all your diseases. We have to be careful here because if if we're not careful, it just becomes something we say but doesn't kind of ring true to life. So we just say it and move on. But it keeps this little seed that the Bible is kind of disconnected from reality and that religion is disconnected from reality. And so you have life you have to live. And over here you die of disease. But over here you have a belief system that says, well, God heals you of all your diseases. And they don't really ring true to one another. But this is what I believe and this is the life I have to live. And it keeps faith and life disconnected. We don't even mean it intentionally. It just happens. And it seems like our faith is fairy tale kind of stuff. David is telling himself, he's reminding his soul, don't forget his benefits. He heals not some of your diseases. He heals all of your diseases. How can that be true? Well, you know how it can be true. It's true ultimately and only and finally in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it, it is true. The reason why this doesn't ring true to us, if it doesn't, if we've taken any time to think about it, the reason why it might not ring true to us is because our frame of reference is too small. We fall into the secular trap of believing that all of God's promises have to happen within my 80 years or else they were not fulfilled. The reality is we all die of something. 
But that does not negate the promise that is given to us here. The psalmist, David, is confident that he forgives all my iniquities and he heals all my diseases. Whether in this life or in the next, we will rise from the dead with bodies that are disease-free. And that's not disconnected from reality. That gives Christianity hope. It gives Christians hope. Even in the face of a pandemic, what have we to fear if all our diseases will be healed? The problem is we're clingers. We're clingers to this life. Again, we operate within this small 80-year frame of reference. But David's, expand, David's vision is well expanded beyond that. He is confident in the God who will forgive all our iniquities, who will heal all our diseases. Again, I've said it before, the prosperity gospel is not wrong. They just got their time frame wrong. God will heal the faithful. He will do it. It just may not be in this life. But he will do it. They're on to something. They've just made an idol out of this life. But indeed, the promise is here. He will do it. He will heal all our diseases. And thirdly, he will deliver us. Here's where it links, right? He will redeem your life from destruction. All of our lives are on this path toward destruction, but ours is a God who will deliver us from destruction, the ultimate destruction being death. And think about David's position. He couldn't, he couldn't even get the full picture, right? We read in, in 1 Peter 1 that these guys preached about stuff they would never see fulfilled in their lives, but they preached about stuff that would be fulfilled in our lives. That's what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 1. We get to see it. We have seen, through the apostles, a man walk out of a grave. We have seen his his himself healed and him delivered from death, all his diseases being delivered from. We've seen that because we've seen Jesus walk out of a tomb after three days. David could only imagine, but we have had the privilege of seeing it. He redeems our life from destruction. He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies our mouths with good things. Here he gets down to the, to the, the simple gifts of life. God is not only God who provides the big ticket items, but he also provides us these daily blessings of tender mercies, daily mercies. His mercies, the scriptures tell us, are new every morning, and he satisfies our mouths with good things. He clothes us like the lilies of the field and he provides shelter over our heads and food for our mouths and drink for our, our, our thirst. And he does it so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. And then finally in verse six, the Lord executes righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is just and he is righteous. These are all of his benefits. Do you remind yourself of these? Can you rattle them off in the middle of the day? Or does your soul tend to forget and your mind tend to wander? Well, the psalmist is calling himself here to remember. So first, we remember the blessings, the benefits of our God. And then secondly, the second thing the psalmist calls himself to remember is God himself. That is, don't forget, soul, what God has done for me. But secondly, don't forget, soul, who God is. Don't forget the kind of God he is. And he's going to rip down through this text now. And, and most of this, the, I think the, meta, the, not metaphor, the image that is the controlling image here is that of a father. 
right? Because he's, he's going to bring that up uh, down in verse 13. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. But, but listen to the whole stretch here. Going back to verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. So now, now we're not just talking about what he does for us, the benefits. Now we're talking about him, his character. The Lord is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, and as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. Soul, do not forget who your God is. Your God is a father. He's not just the ruler over heaven and earth. He is a father. And as a father, he loves his children. He doesn't just provide for them. He loves them. He pities them. He redeems them. He forgives them. He knows them. The psalmist is saying, the Lord knows who we are. He knows that we're like a flower of the field. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we are nothing. We are dust. We are like flowers of the field that has its little moment and the wind blows over it and it's gone. Like the Father knows your weaknesses. And as such, he loves you. I mean, you know me, but you don't know me that well. I know you, but I don't know you that well. God knows me perfectly. He knows every nook and cranny of my sin. There is nothing hidden from you. There's all kinds of things hidden from you and from you to me. But from God, there is nothing hidden. And as such, with that knowledge... He loves me. With that knowledge of you, he loves you. And the psalmist is reminding his own soul not to forget the God that he loves and the God that he serves. He is a father who pities his children. He is a father who is overflowing with mercy and kindness. He does strive with his children. He disciplines those he loves. But his anger doesn't last forever. He will not always strive with them. He is slow to anger and rich in mercy. Soul, do not forget. And the reason why David has to preach this to his soul is because whether it's forgetfulness or idolatry, we tend to distort the image of God. We tend to distort who God is. And here David is preaching to himself to remember our God is the God who revealed himself to Moses and to Israel to a bunch of whiny, complaining, disobedient shepherds. Our God is the God who revealed his way to them and who loved them and who planted them in a land and who said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's a God who pities his people. Soul, 
don't forget not only what he's done, but do not forget who he is. And then thirdly, Saul, don't forget his promises. Verse 17 and 18. He's a God of covenant keeping. He's a covenant making God. Now you'll be forgotten. Verse 16. For you are like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. As the hymn says, they fly forgotten as a dream. Most of us will not be remembered in two generations. Right? Our place will remember us no more. It's, a, it's an Ecclesiastes kind of reality we have to come to grips with, but it's true. But your father will not forget you. He will remember you. You know why? Because verse 17, and notice the but. Its place remembers it no more. That is the flower of the field, you and me. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children and to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. For his people, they will never be forgotten. It's a little, there's a little, uh, I think it's, I think it's uh, Genesis 7 verse 1. And it's after the flood, and they're in the middle of the flood and so forth. And then in Genesis 7, I think it's verse 1, it opens this way. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah. And I love that little phrase, the fact that Moses puts that in there. But it didn't just say, and then God did for Noah what he said he would do. It says, but God remembered Noah. God remembers his children because he makes promises to them, and he even puts the bow in the sky. And you'll remember there that the bow in the sky, you read that. I ask my students all the time, why is that rainbow in the sky? And they say, well, it's a sign of God's promises. I said, yeah, but who is it there to remind about those promises? And they say, well, us. So I said, that, go read the text. It doesn't say that. The bow is there so that you know that God remembers. It's there not to remind God as if God loses the memory, but the rainbow is in the sky so that when God sees it, he remembers his covenant promise to you. And it's there so that when you see it, you know that God remembers. God is a faithful God who keeps his covenant promises. And that bow is in the sky so that you know that he is a God who remembers. And it's interesting in Revelation chapter 4, as God is seated on his throne, that surrounding the throne is a rainbow. Right there around the throne. God is a covenant-keeping God, a God of promise. Don't ever forget it, soul. Be like Martin Luther, who finally realized that his salvation is sola gratia, that it's by grace alone. It is by the covenant-keeping and covenant-making God that you are saved. Don't forget it. Remember what he's done for you. Remember who he is. Then remember his promises to you, and don't ever forget them. Then fourthly, verse 19, remember that your God, and this is what we've had this throughout these Psalms, remember that your God reigns. So here again, even in this Psalm, it's not lost. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven, in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. And in a time like ours, a couple of years of chaos and, and where things feel unstable, don't you need to preach this sermon to your soul? Don't you need to preach to yourself and remind yourself, hey, soul, don't forget the Lord has established his throne in heaven. 
that God is sovereignly ruling over heaven and earth. His kingdom rules over all. God's kingdom rules over COVID. God's kingdom rules over America. God's kingdom rules over conservatives and liberals and Republicans and Democrats. And it rules over Europe and it rules over the Middle East and it rules over China. God's kingdom rules over all these things. Don't forget it, soul, because you tend to watch the news and feel like things are run amok, that things are uh, running out of control. But don't forget, before God's throne is a sea of glass, peace, tranquility, before the throne of God. Soul, don't forget that. We will tend to forget it, but we need to be good preachers to ourselves. And tell ourselves this daily and remind ourselves that our God is seated upon his throne and he does whatever he pleases. And he works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Preach that to your soul. And then finally, remember to praise. And not just remember to praise, but remember to call people to praise. That's what this psalm ends with. He begins with preaching to his own soul, but then he can't contain himself. And it's like, again, in Revelation 5, where the, the lamb, the glory of the lamb is manifested, and then praise begins, and then the praise builds, and it grows, and it cascades out until all creation in the end of that is giving this thunderous praise. And here the psalmist is calling for that. He begins, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me, bless his holy name. But by the time he gets to verse 20, he can't contain himself. Now it's not just bless the Lord, my soul, but bless the Lord, you, his angels, who excel in strength and who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Now, this is what we do every time we sing the doxology. Right? When we sing the doxology, we're basically taking up this call in Psalm 103, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts, right? We're doing what David does here, and we're summoning the angelic beings. We're summoning the church triumphant to join with us in praise of God. And so the psalmist reminds himself and now reminds us not only to praise God, but to call others to praise, to cosmic praise. Bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength and who do his word, heeding the voice of the word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. I think there he's talking about creation. He's talking about the sun, moon, and stars. He's talking about uh, the skies and the created order. Again, go back and read the end of Revelation 5, that beautiful ending of praise where the four living creatures representing the you know, all creation are bowing before him and the elders are bowing before him and the angels 10,000 times 10,000 are falling before him to praise. Bless him, all creation. The very creation whose the heavens declare the glory of God. Join, he's saying, join me in singing. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. And then he returns again. Bless the Lord, all my soul. Well, Affirmation Church, I want to challenge you this morning to become better preachers, faithful, continual preachers to yourself. Take up Psalm 103 upon your lips. Read Psalm 103. Memorize large chunks of Psalm 103 so that through the psalmist you can speak to your soul. 
Remember, this is here to be the training wheels for you. How do you preach to your soul? Start by reading Psalm 103. Start there. And you will preach a wonderful sermon. You don't even need to elaborate. Just preach Psalm 103 straight from the text to your soul and you will do well. And if you do that enough, eventually you will be able to go on your own. But never, ever, ever leave Psalm 103 or the scriptures. Let them be the words that you preach to yourself. And in so doing, you will have a healthy soul. Fail to do it. And our hearts are prone to wander, as the hymn writer says. Prone to leave the God we love. I think we can admit that. So let us become better preachers to ourselves. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the words of this psalm. We thank you for the, the hope of forgiveness that they give, the truth that they declare to us. Oh, Father, fill our souls with joy as we contemplate you and your character, Lord God. For you are a God who is rich in mercy. Father, we can often think of you as stringent. We can think of you as angry with us. And though from time to time you may be angry with our sin, Father, this psalm teaches us to think of you as rich in mercy and abounding with loving kindness toward us. Father, remind us, we pray, to remember your blessings and your benefits, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that have been poured out to us, the forgiveness of our sins, the healing of all our diseases, the deliverance from destruction and from death. Father, that which you give to satisfy our mouth with good things, justice and deliverance from oppression, all these benefits that are ours. Father, we thank you for them. Remind us also, we pray, of your covenant blessings to us, your covenant promises. Remind us of your reign and your kingdom. And Father, finally remind us to praise you and to join in all creation in cosmic praise. Make us good preachers to ourselves, we pray, for we need your word daily, hourly, moment by moment in our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.